I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. This podcast is sponsored by Guinness, who also sponsored the Women's Six Nations. Please remember to drink responsibly. Gavin Casey here, as always, we've got a stack show coming up for you and I'm joined, as always, to chat through it all by my colleague with 42.8, Murray Kinsella. Murray, how are you? I'm great, Gav. How are you? I'm splendid, thank you very much. Busy show with the big man as well. Bernard Jackman joins us as always. Bert, how are you? Good, thank you. Good. Lovely. We'll chat about Connick's new signing off the top. Uh, we've got some women's Six Nations to review and look forward to and maybe look at the bigger picture for Ireland as well after that hefty enough defeat to France last weekend. We're going to chat about the Rainbow Cup or lack thereof as it transpires and a couple more things as well including including rather coaching development which is something Birch wants to get into a little bit later on. Um, breaking news though this morning Murray as we record on Thursday which is that Rog is staying put. Three year deal for him uh, down in La Rochelle. Did it catch you by surprise at all or were you kind of half expecting him to extend his stay at this point? It's something we've discussed a bit in the in the recent weeks obviously with La Rochelle going so well and I think we kind of said a few times, why would he leave what he's got there? And that's my feeling of it of it now. Like, what was he going to come home to? He's he's in a club that's on the rise, has good backing. When fans are allowed in the stadiums, that place is rocking every single weekend. You can see they're making great signings, have have an excellent squad, and and he definitely feels that he as a coach is is going to continue to improve there. John O'Gibbs is leaving this summer. That's been cons- confirmed now as well officially. Heading to Clermont on a three-year deal. He got an early release from La Rochelle. So Rog is going to be the main man. He's in charge. He was head coach this season and last. Um, but now Gibbs is gone and he's the guy running the whole ship. So it's a great project that he's head of now. And I think he would have been crazy really to leave it and come back and take a punt at this stage of his career. There was no obvious opening in Ireland at the moment. Um, so yeah, he's doing a fine job and the club are obviously extremely happy with him. A three-year commitment is 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 really strong from them and I'm excited to see where it goes. They've been an absolute joy to watch this season and it's great to see them competing and, and pushing on in Europe. We need more clubs at that top table. So long may it last. I know a lot of people will be gutted that he's, he's not coming home just yet but maybe that'll be somewhere down the line and maybe it won't be at all because you know there's greener grass sometimes outside Ireland Ah, he'll be back all right someday don't worry about it but (laughs) Birch I think the fact that John O'Gibbs is stepping away might have made this decision a little bit easier for Rod in that he's meticulously planned out um, his coaching career to this point and this as much as it's kind of the same experience in that he's remaining at the same club the added weight of responsibility that he'd be taking on in Gibbs' absence is something that he'll probably see as standing to him if he ever does return to Ireland or if he ever moves elsewhere. It's it is a it's a kind of a gradual step up in the type he's been making throughout his career so far. Yeah, absolutely. It's another um it's another step uh towards having total well, he has total control now. Um uh so that's that's great. I mean, I think it was brilliant to work under I'm sure it was great to work under someone like John O'Gibbs who has such experience across, you know, Leinster working with Joe Schmidt and, and Claremont. Um, and I know my own experience, um, there's a lot of stuff when you're when you're at the top of the organization in terms of the coaching staff, there's a huge amount of things that aren't anything to do with coaching um, that get in the way. So obviously he's 
He's got to take on more responsibility, take on being head coach, looking after the attack and defence. Um, and now he probably feels he's ready to, you know, get more of a, well, total control over recruitment retention um, and all those things that go into building a, a long-term project. And I think La Rochelle, I mean, it's a very stable project. Um, you know, the president is there. I think 91 he came in. Um, you know, they have unbelievable support from the localities, set out every week when they're allowed in. Um, and while they don't have the money they're asking have and, and they can't go out and, you know, be crazy in the transfer market, there's a really good budget there to to grow. Uh, so, yeah, look, at it, it's, it's it's great for him. And, and fairness to Raj, like he hasn't been someone to jump ship quickly. I mean, you know, he went to the Crusaders. That wouldn't have been as financially lucrative. He's a long way from home. Um, and he won a Super Rugby his first year. You know, and it would have been other coaches who would have said, look, get back to France or get back to Europe quickly. He, he stayed the second year, um, you know, immersed himself in that. And now he's he's going to be, what, five years minimum in, in La Rochelle. So, um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a real positive for him. And, and look, at, I'll be honest, and it probably goes on to something else we're going to talk about. The Pro 14 wouldn't drag you home at the moment anyway. You know, the I know Europe is a big draw for, for Irish provincial fans. Um, but unfortunately, that's only you know, six, seven weekends a year and you know, the top 14 um, and a lot of people might know a huge amount about it, but it's just, it's a buzz every week. It's a, it's like a European Cup game every week down there and uh, someone like Raj, who's a, a, a competitor and, and he loves big games, he, he's going to get whatever, 30, 30 weekends of that um, on an ongoing basis for the next three years. He's already established himself as a, I suppose, a, a, not a cult figure, but the fans love him over there and the club absolutely love him as well. I remember when we were in Japan for the Rugby World Cup. Myself and Keen Tracy were on a night out and we bumped into these French lads and one of them said, oh, I'm actually a dirigeant, like a one of the kind of guys behind the scenes in La Rochelle. And he didn't, we didn't pay for a drink for the rest of the night. So thanks a million for that as well, Ron O'Gara. He's uh, doing, doing credit for Irish men all over the world. <laughs> Speaking of Irish men all over the world, then Connacht have got an Irish man coming home, so to speak. Mac Hansen's mother is from Cork, so he's immediately Irish qualified. This guy's a hell of a ball player, Murray. Uh, he's obviously been doing very well for the Brombies, but covers the back three, can play a little bit of 10. I don't think there's any doubt that his best position is on the left wing. He's a deadly finisher. He's got a bit of everything. Explosivity, pace, good in the air, uh, has that little bit of um, playmaking ability as well. This was described as a coup by Andy Friend and it very much feels like one, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. I, I've watched a bit of him um, and he's been good in a few games. I can't say I, I thought he was a really outstanding player, if I'm being completely honest. He's only 23, obviously, and he's got loads of potential. Where I thought he was, at his most exciting, was probably I saw him play for the under-20s in 2018, I think it was. He was at fullback there and he was really impressive. And you can definitely see that he has those skills to transfer over to, to out half. Um, I remember he came on there at 10 for the Brumbies, or at out half rather for the Brumbies and, and nailed a, a kind of match-winning penalty as well. Um, so he's clearly got a bit of composure about him. Um, not not a move I expected because obviously you never know about the Irish links until until the move is announced. It's great scouting and, and fairness, Andy Friend has good links back there. So he would have picked up it along the grapevine and um, the Irish qualified thing helps a lot. Um, yeah, I'd be fascinated to see how it goes. I mean, 
he's not a, a very established um, player coming in from abro- abroad. He's probably a guy who's still on an upward trajectory and and learning all sorts. Um, but a, but an exciting addition, and and Andy Friend certainly has tapped up that Australian market pretty well so far. His track record has has been good. Uh, the guys coming in, um, and you probably expect this to be along similar lines. He's done well in the transfer market, as we've spoken about. As he says, he's not shopping at Brown Thomas, but he's doing his best with it. Um, and this is another interesting deal that kind of, yeah, I suppose, comes out of the blue and um, could very well work out nicely for them. So Murray is pissed all over the move, Bernard. Can you pick up Connacht fans' moods there at home? Uh, <laughs> how, how much of uh, Mac Hansen have you seen? Maybe I've just been fortunate that, or maybe just by chance, the games I've seen him play in, I've been impressed by, and, and I've missed a couple of his quiet games. I've only seen him play three or four times. Uh, so have you yeah. seen more of him than me? Yeah, look, I, I would agree. He he hasn't blown the house down um, when I've seen him play, but definitely accomplished. Definitely will come in and add uh, add to uh, to Connacht. The fact he's Irish qualified is a, as Murray said, is a, is a real boost. And yeah, Andy Friend has has done well with probably lowish key signings, and uh, you know that's a skill in itself. So um, and unfortunately for him, he probably needs them to be successes just because. Uh, they wouldn't have the depth that, that other other teams have and can afford to maybe miss the odd few. Um, so yeah, it's good. I mean, I kind of do need a little bit of a boost. I think it'll be interesting um, if they, what happens um, at eight, whether they they stick, um, you know, they stick with with uh, uh, Papali, Ap- Apali, Apali, or whether they go again. But uh, he has shown bits and pieces that you would like. It's just probably uh, taking him a little bit longer to adapt than. Um, I suppose you'd also like so I, I do think they're lacking that ace even though Boyle is, is, is top class just a, a second one um, who can give them gain line but yeah obviously a lot of coaching changes there as well um, so it does seem it'll be like a, a fresh a, a fresh start for them this summer and um, they're not a million miles away they were very close to being um, the top team in that conference in last year's Pro 14 final um, so they're, they're, they're close uh, so yeah I think it's Connor fans should be happy. Obviously, maybe one or two more signs would be uh, welcomed. Yeah, they could probably do with a loose head, Murray, uh, you'd reckon. And as Bernard says, maybe back row, maybe an open side. Like they're, they're probably two or three players short of having a really, really strong um, first 15 or, or, or first 23, if you like. Like Andy Friend has built a good squad, but maybe just need those couple of additions to become a proper contender in a Pro 14 that may or may not involve South African teams, I suppose. Mm. It's like it's obviously a different time, a difficult time rather to be going out and trying to recruit and add another layer to your squad. Certainly at the moment with restrictions and cutbacks, um, but he has shown, I suppose, creativity in this side of of the, of the job. Um, and this is probably another example of it: finding the Irish qualified link and and getting a player down they they feel is going to add to the squad. So fingers crossed, he can he can find another couple of deals. Um, as you say, there's a couple areas there where they could do with some of that depth that. Probably has come back to to bite them a little bit um, when they're competing on two fronts in Europe and in, in the Pro 14 or Pro 16 or whatever it'll be next season. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think they may not be finished quite quite yet. We'll chat about the Pro whatever it is in a moment. Let's look back on the women's defeat to France over the weekend. And as much as Ireland were uh, underwhelming, France were sublime to watch at times. Birch, you spoke about the game on Against the Head on Monday on RTE and Murray and I spoke about it for the 42 members on Monday. So I don't think we need to go into it 
uh, in too much detail. Let's look at a, a bigger picture here as well. Um, I guess just to get a quick enough synopsis from you, from people who, who didn't hear us on Monday or, or watch you on Monday, uh, how much of it did you put down to Ireland actually underperforming and how much of it did you put down to just a disparity in quality between the two teams? Um, mainly the disparity. I, I, I've no issue with this uh, this team's um, work ethic or professional, uh, not professionalism, diligence um, and desire to to train hard and 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 get the most from camp and all that stuff. Uh, they, they do that. So I, I don't want to criticise them um, for losing to France because I think it's not a level playing field. But it's not not a level playing field in terms of professionalism. It's le- not a level playing field in terms of um, grassroots rugby and uh, training age of the women we see uh, playing on, on Saturday. And we've completely... Sorry, there are a few will, will deny this, whatever, but from what I can see, and it's only my opinion, is there's been a massive focus on, on the sevens Okay, and hoping that sevens potentially will strengthen. Um, it'll do well in its own right, obviously, but obviously then will strengthen the the, the women's uh, depth chart. Now the problem is with sevens because of the nature of the squad, you're dealing with a much smaller group of of, of athletes. All right, um, so you're not going to get. It's going to be hard to be able to have uh, enough athletes who can do both well. Okay, so you're always going to be short, as far from what I can see. Plus, you're not going to get front five players uh, uh, through it um, plus by the time they do come from when you go for those cross athletes cross sport athletes by the time they pick up sevens um, they're generally you know 24, 25 and then they got to pick up 15s um, so you're not going to get long careers at them so I just think it's very uh, very short sighted um, and if it was the, if it was the model to go down um, why wouldn't they do the same for the men's? Why wouldn't they go and get the best Dublin GA player, give him a contract to play sevens for two years and, and he can go to Connacht in, in three years' time? The reason is there's enough people playing the game from a young age here that those athletes, even if they're a little bit more athletic, they won't catch up in terms of the rugby content. So um, so I'm against uh, I'm against how we've really prioritised that so much. I think that can go on its own right. Um, and, and the RFU have put a lot of funding into this and they've hired a lot of people Um but the issue is that we haven't. My my concern is that we had a golden generation in 2013 who won a Grand Slam, um, who be, who got to the semi final World Cup, beat New Zealand, um, who had done it despite not having any support, and I felt that they didn't get used properly to make sure that we we harnessed that goodwill, energy, um, uh, positivity from them to go and actually make sure that now, whatever, nine years later, eight years later, we, we don't have that issue of grassroots. You know, the grassroots issue was was had started and, and, and built momentum. And I'm sure it's better now. It is better now than it was. But I don't think there's been enough drive or creativity. We had a Hutton World Cup in 2017. You know, let's be honest. Uh, and again, I mean, people in the RFU would probably argue that we did hit the numbers in terms of, I don't know what, social media likes and things like that. But um in terms of actually running a good competition, getting people into the stadiums, the team being well prepared, I feel, and it's only my opinion again, that we didn't capitalise on it. Um, and now we're in 2021, and and again, I, I just felt, I, I sorry, I still feel, it's not clear to me as a, as a rugby person and fan who is responsible, who's going to drive women's rugby. It's not going to drive itself. You know what I mean? Um, it's not going to drive itself. Not as the men's game won't drive itself. Um, but, I, you know, it's pretty clear to us in anything to do with performance for the men's game, it's David Nusifor. So that's who's responsible for it. And 
that's who has to make sure it's successful for the women's game. I I I feel it's it's not really clear. And I, and I brought the example of someone like Lynn Cantwell, who South Africa have seen value in um, and have made her the um, the driver for for women's rugby in South Africa from now on. And it'll be up to her to to implement their strategy. And it's very clear. We haven't really got that. And then obviously, you know, yesterday we saw the head coach of the women's team didn't know who was responsible for domestic rugby in, in, in women's. And again, it'd be like Andy, it'd be like Andy Farr not knowing who was coaching Connacht, or um, it'd be like Andy Farr not knowing what teams were in the Six Nations. That's how basic that question was. Because if you're the head coach of the Irish women's team, you have to know what's happening in the domestic game, because it's not a professional team. So the the, the players in it come from the domestic game. So I just, it might, you know, it, it's an awful PR. Um, uh, blow for the IRFU but it happened and you'd have to ask how it happened and how much focus are they actually putting on um, you know if you're a professional head coach of the women's team it's it's unacceptable it's mind-boggling how it could happen uh, that you would not know who was responsible for domestic rugby um, in Ireland because in my opinion if you're not having at least quarterly meetings with that person um the job isn't happening. Whatever action plan they have is highly unlikely to be successful because the guy who sees the the, the best of the best um, on a on a very regular basis and is managing their performance, he should be able to help the head of domestic women's rugby uh, with feedback in terms of what's working well, what's not working well. And if you're meeting that person, you know who he is or she is. So that's uh, it's a big blow for for the RFU, and I feel sorry for the RFU because I'm I'm smash I'm hammering them here, um, and I actually think they've invested a huge amount of money. You go into the RFU website, you look at rugby and see the amount of staff that are working in professional rugby um, in this country. There's people for everything, you know. We've got that analyst. We've uh, we've got every single thing you would want, and yes, we don't seem to have a clear connection between. The, the the women's game and the domestic game. And again, the RFU will come out and say there is a clear connection. Just for me, that that worried me a lot yesterday. Um, and I think it should be the wake-up call that people in the RFU need that it's not clearly visible, um, this plan of action. And if it's not visible, it's highly likely to work because it's not a money thing. This is actually getting the grassroots uh, people in clubs and schools and universities to take... Um, this vision and run with it themselves and be supported by the RFU. So that's the that's the challenge. So money, using money as an excuse, it's one person, I think, one person responsible, and then a lot of the goodwill and work will be done on a volunteer basis. It's interesting. I mean, the one person responsible, if it is David Nusifora overseeing all of this, which it is, uh, if you, you go back four years, Murray, and it really was only four years ago, where it became, I'd say, transparent that they were going to focus on the sevens program more so than the fifteens. It's a bit more of a money spinner with the Olympic uh, qualification and and a few things like that. And and a growing force in the game probably has. At the time, it probably seemed as though it had a higher ceiling financially for for the IRFU. And you remember Hannah Tyrrell, Ali Miller, Seninope, who were taken out of a Six Nations squad. Uh, to play France and and moved into a seven squad and there was a big hullabaloo about that at the time, probably understandably. What's interesting to me about that um, story, looking back on it, is that Ireland beat France in that game. 
like they actually were were without three of their best players uh, for reasons beyond their control, but still had a kind of a parity with France and a superiority on that particular day. And it's only four years later where we're looking at a situation in which it actually doesn't look like that Ireland team for all of their efforts, for all of their training uh, that Bernard touched upon would get it within an ass's roar of beating France in the next four or five years. Um, So it reminds me a little bit of Skype and Zoom at the start of the pandemic when Skype had been kind of plowing away for 15 years. Suddenly Zoom comes along and, and, and Skype has blown a lead, if you like, and it's outdated and no longer really used. And I guess it's happened so suddenly. My fear, as I spoke to you about on Monday, would be that this is at a point now where the sport is going to accelerate in its growth. And if you get left behind at this point, there might be no coming back or no coming back for 20, 25 years. Forget about five years. Yeah, well, the funny thing about that example you use there is, sorry, it's not funny at all, actually. The the thing about that example is that the Ireland Sevens women's team didn't qualify for the Olympics. And that's why they were being, I suppose, funneled across into it. Um, so they've put all the eggs in that basket in, in some degree for, for that kind of project and it, it didn't work out uh, which was a big blow to the project because in David Nusifora's eyes you know an Ireland women's team playing in, in the Olympic sevens will capture loads of interest and get people interested in playing that short form of the game and therefore they funnel into 15s um, and absolutely that's a, a valid theory but um, you're taking a bit of a punt on it aren't you the other thing about like the, the, the stuff from Adam Griggs yesterday was I agree with Bernard that's Bizarre, isn't it? Like, there's a there's a director of women's rugby in the RFU. Anthony Eddy is his name, and he was hired to do that job as well as the sevens. Um, so surely either it should be his remit or Collie McEntee, who's in the RFU in charge of the kind of club domestic side of the game. Um, more recently, moving into that role, like it should be unbelievably clearly defined which one of those people is is directing it uh, domestically, because David Nusifor himself and Anthony Eddy have both shot down the idea of professionalism in favour of sorting out that pipeline, in, in favour of let's grow the, the playing numbers before that's a, anything more than what they call a distraction. So for them not to actually know who's running this priority in women's rugby is absolutely damning, really. I mean, there's no there's no defending that and, and they get pissed off with people all they want talking in the media saying, oh, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. But that's a very simple very simple question um, that Gav Komiski asked Adam Griggs in the in the presser and and there was no answer. It was just a, a crazy thing. So that needs to be clarified um, immediately and someone needs to get running that programme and listen, uh, there's loads of people doing good work across girls' rugby in Ireland and we've spoken about a few examples of, of clubs and the appetite and the desire there and this is a long-term thing. Like, unfortunately, the reality is a lot of the players who are starting off now and the likes of of Baven Parsons and stuff it takes a long time to get to where they are even um, but there has to be a unity of vision and there has to be someone driving that who is visible who's when we're able to get around the country again who is getting around the country who's engaging with clubs all the time who's not siloed in the office in Ballsbridge in Dublin and isn't accessible to people like get out and, and lead I suppose the what you're talking about, lead that pipeline to to flow with numbers and, and get them into the team so that you, when you play France, you've got a tight head who's been playing tight head since she was eight years old or, or whatever it might be. Um, because that's, uh, I suppose that's the difference at the moment. The French players are 
they're, they're all like Baven Parsons and Dorothy Wall. They've all been playing since they were young and, and you can see the, the gap there. So I just think there's mixed messages there. They're talking about prioritising something over going professional route and then they don't know themselves who's in charge of it. So they've got to get that in order. Sticking with yourself, Murray, yeah, just, just briefly. Or sorry, Bert, come in here. No, no, just just on this, like, um, in fairness, uh, it only really gets highlighted when we play England or France because that's when the focus is on. And th- and this this um, Six Nations obviously would have been moved and not clashing with the men's. There is more eyes on it, um, which is a good thing. You know, it, it's a good thing, but it, it's important that for the other 50 weeks of the year, um, it, it's just not forgotten about because, because this is a grassroots uh, project, it will take so long for us to get any benefits from it. And if we don't start it, and if it's not um, a coherent and energetic plan, we've no chance. And, and, and fairness, my, I think we need to split it. I think there needs to be somebody solely responsible for for the women's game because you know the club game, the men's club game, is on its knees as well. So that's a job in itself to try and you know create um, a dynamic and vibrant club game, which in their um, in their strategic plan, which is the only thing we can really go back to because we see or hear so little from the IRFU. We, we, Dave Nussifors gives us um, his insights once a year. So for the rest of the year, we have to go back to strategic plan. And there's three core, Ruby's our core business, delivering performance, I'll talk about that in a second, developing the game, which is a vibrant club and school network. Schools look after themselves. They have very little influence from the IRFU. It's headmasters, it's parents, and it's past pupils driving that. Um, and that's still going okay, but the club game isn't uh, vibrant. Um, and women in rugby, building a strong base to grow the women's game, I think we know there's work to be done there. And then in terms of measurables, just go to the senior team. World Cup semi-finals are better in 2019. Right? We failed miserably at that. Obviously, maybe we'll do it in 2023. Two or more Six Nation titles, we're not on track for that. You know, We've been third for the last three seasons and consistently in the top three in the world. Um, I don't think we haven't been hitting those markers either. So realistically, for all the focus on performance and men's and and the national team or the cash cow, uh, and I'm you know we're not meet, meeting those numbers either. And England had one bad Six Nations, right? They finished fifth, um, having won the Autumn Cup, having won the Six Nations, having been World Cup finalists, and massive review, and and it goes out in the public, and everyone sees what the feedback from the team was. We had a World Cup review. No one saw it, except David and Uh We were told, um, you know, Joe Schmidt was thrown under the bus. We didn't have enough skills. We weren't skillful enough, and there was a mental issue. Um, you know, and like, okay, they took Gary Keegan in recently, but like, that wasn't addressed for a year. Munster don't have a full-time skills coach. You know, if skills was the, was the, was the issue, why haven't we had a skills program? Uh, why haven't we developed... You know a real coherent plan for for the skills program. So I, I just think, I just think there's a lack of transparency, lack of openness, and fine if you if you look like you're going if you're hitting your numbers. That's what saved them in 2018. We were brilliant in 2018. No one could ask any questions because we're successful. Now we're not hitting our markers at senior and international level, and it's just like how dare you ask a question? I mean, like at the end of the day, it's not their game. It's the it's the it's the people's game and uh, I think you have to ask questions and you have to basically see what what the solutions are what are the solutions then like structurally if 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 we were looking at the next steps or, or some kind of incremental improvement that we're probably not seeing so much at the moment despite as you say Murray all of the great efforts of people at the club level uh, like 
even in terms of the women's AIL, obviously we're going to need that to be stronger if that's going to be the system that feeds the national team. How do we improve that as a competition? Not us, but how do they improve it? Well, I mean, there has to be a commitment um, to to giving resource. As Bernd says, there's plenty of staff in the RFU and it's about um, channeling in the right way. But even with the AIL, like, you would hope that at some stage in the next month or couple of months, we'll hear a bit of clarity around what that structure is going to be, whether they've made changes to that. Again, the RFU, it's been a pretty good week for them. They just released a, a kind of update with a bit of clarity around what the amateur club game is going to look like. They've clearly used this time sensibly to assess that, to engage with clubs and figure it out. I mean, even the men's AL, we haven't had any kind of clarity like that at all. You would have hoped that coming out of this, there, there would have been, again, coming in towards September, that there will be clarity on that. Um, but even with the women's AL, like, it's kind of been sitting there a great distance from test level standard, as we've spoken about. And you've even seen clubs individually, like Railway Union, um, going over and, and trying to get a fixture in the UK themselves. The Rugby Academy Ireland are the ones setting up that under-20s team or, and have tried to get that going and get a game in the UK. Obviously, COVID uh, affected those plans, but like, why is that being done independently rather than, than through the RFU and, and fully backed by them? Um, getting those AAL games or clubs, some international games would be a, a massive positive against the, the quality of the clubs in England or even France or even do that with the provinces. Like, And I know that they've they've slightly beefed up the interprovincial program um, more games um the last time it was played but keep going with that you know maybe get them on a, a little tour after the interpro series each of the provinces it is going to be tough financially i know but you've got to put your money where your mouth is to it to a degree um and increase competition and increase the level of it increase the resource available to coaches so that you know your players are going to be as skillful as france and england's when when it comes to it on, on the 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 big occasion. It's not just about being in camp. A lot of the work um, you can't really do like that in a, in a test match week. It's got to be regular throughout the course of the, the season. Someone going to the clubs and leading that um, development kind of program. So there's loads of little bits they can do. It's just about the appetite to get it done. And again, as we always say, communication is is a really important part of it. If they're if they are doing this stuff, they got to communicate better. They got to know who's in charge of it and, and let us know that. Yeah, Bert, it's important to point out as well, I suppose, that it's not just Ireland in this boat. Like This is ostensibly a two-tiered championship at the moment, just in terms of resources, and that's what most of this comes down to. Wales are far worse off than Ireland at the moment. Scotland, you could say, are lagging behind a little bit. We don't know. They didn't play against each other this year, and Scotland certainly were much improved, even in defeat against Italy, compared to how they performed against England a couple of weeks prior. But... I saw Maggie Alfonsi, the former England World Cup winner, was lamenting the lack of investment in Welsh women's rugby by the WRU. And I was looking into their squad and um, and actually uh, Fiona Thomas in The Telegraph had a brilliant piece. I think it was with Maggie, but she's written a few other pieces about women's rugby recently, which have caught the eye. And Wales, in their matchday squad against Ireland, had 22 out of their 23 players who play in England, like who play at this top level that we're accrediting as producing these brilliant English players and, and uh, professional players at that. So it feels like this kind of is a numbers game as well. It's about the number of people you actually get playing the game at a, at a far younger age to the point that you develop their skills when they're more malleable, if you like. And that just moving our current players or even, say, um, 
18 year olds, 19 year olds into more professionalized leagues wouldn't even be enough. It needs to start at a far lower level, more grassroots level than that. Yeah, absolutely. And in fairness, um, a lot of those Welsh players left Welsh clubs to, to play in England because um, it seemed as if the, the competition was going to start before the Welsh competition. So um, they wanted to get some games. So they're not, a lot of them will come back into the to, into the Welsh system. Um, look at the Welsh system is flawed as well, but there's a you know, big push from past play players over there from um, both male and female uh, to, to try and I suppose um, encourage the WRU to put a plan together. Like it, it, that's the reality of it. Other countries they know they're not they're they're, they're struggling. They haven't um, got behind this in a in a meaningful way or haven't been successful. And they are addressing it, um, and it's it's literally who's going to address it the quickest is going to that'll transfer to the top. But I I think, um, you know, that what happens at the top is a function of what happens underneath. And and um, I, I'm not like I, I don't I don't think we should criticize the the the, the team we saw against France um, because I, I think they're ha- hampered by the structures we have. But what we have to do is say try and give. The girl, uh, the, the women who play in in five six years time, a better chance of being able to compete. And how do you do that? You you create a a club game with more competition, and uh, with the players spread across, uh, well, more depth spread across more clubs. And then I would say, you know, a very strong interprovincial competition where again there's another step up in terms of level. So the competition drives the performance, and then that the cream rises to the top, uh, and and then we have a chance to try and chase down France and England. But, um, uh, you know, just because Wales and England, Scotland are in a bad place, um, you know, we we can't let that uh, affect our ability or our drive to um, to improve things. Yeah, it feels like there are so many factors to this. And something we spoke about a few weeks ago as well, Murray, is just, I suppose, making a few of the marquee names on this team more visible to the public because there needs to be a public buy-in into this as well not only in terms of uh bringing your kids down to play girls rugby at six seven eight and so on but actually watching the women's team and becoming invested emotionally uh and probably financially in the women's team going to see them play when that is an option again because ultimately what a lot of this does come back to like the appetite on the irfu's behalf for change and for improvement and if there isn't appetite publicly or isn't enough appetite publicly, then it's likely that the development of the women's game will always be bumped down the pecking order of priorities. So it kind of feels like there, a lot of it is self-fulfilling. If you put more of these players front and centre and, and uh, make them more visible to the public, then you will get that buy-in and therefore uh, create that appetite, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's one, as you say, it's one of many factors. But at the same time, I don't think it is rocket science so we can talk about all the little bits but it does need i think as bernard's flagged it needs a really passionate driver at the top of this particular project like liam campbell is a brilliant example someone who knows the women's game inside out who knows obviously irish rugby inside out is doing something similar in south africa who are a long way back to be fair but i thought it was really interesting listening to her on second captains and and talking about engaging with all the provinces over there trying to get an understanding of their particular issues and challenges in, in each of the different regions, which are, are unique. And and that's what it needs. Like, it doesn't have to be spending millions. It could be one salary or reconfiguring one role to be really driving this side of the game. Because as 
as Bernard says, like there was a separate strategic plan for women's rugby released at the same time and has loads of bold aims and ambitions for numbers growing. Obviously, COVID has affected that and it gives an easy excuse and, and they can restart all that. But like if you're going to make a specific plan, then have a, a really, I suppose, specific leader for, for the project as well. And, and that could really drive things forward. Yeah, a lot of it does look like lip service now. We'll chat about it again someday, no doubt, particularly with World Cup qualifiers and the like still on the horizon. Let's continue this whinge and chat about the Pro 14 Rainbow Cup. <laughs> Speaking of not meeting objectives and so on. Uh, it's a, look, it's, I don't know if it's difficult to lay the blame on anyone's door here. Uh, there are obviously extenuating circumstances and we understand why the competition isn't going ahead probably doesn't even feel like we've had the carpet pulled from under us, Murray, and that we've expected that this would be the case for a number of weeks. And yet what it leaves is a kind of a skeletal tournament. Reminds me a little bit of the league, football league structures in, say, Mexico, Argentina, where you have a, an Apertura champion and a Clausera champion within the same season. And Leinster are now the spring champions and will have to defend their crown in the autumn kind of a thing. And, you know, when we talk about appetite, I don't get the impression that there is universal appetite for this Rainbow Cup Europe uh, that they've labelled it. Mm. It's probably the most muted build-up to it. And in fairness, the Munster Leinster fixture ha- has happened so often recently that hasn't helped. And it's a, definitely too much of a of a good thing. It is such a shame that we're heading into what should be the business end of the season now. And you look at top 14 and Premiership heating up, teams jostling for a position, they're going to head in towards playoffs. And it's hard not to be jealous. This competition, like, it's not going to create that same um, intensity or or desire to win. Obviously, the teams are going to get everything they have and you don't want to diminish or demean that. But it's a pity that we've ended up with this when obviously the hope was to get those South African teams up. It would have been really interesting, but it is not a shock to anyone that it's not going to happen. Um, and there's obviously disappointment and frustration justifiably about that. Really, it's about money. The, the fact that we got to this point because um, Pro 14 Rugby have managed to get the, the South African Rugby Union to to part ways with the 6 million participation fee. So there's a, what, 500k for each club, province, region there at a time when it's badly needed. So that is a, a bit of a positive out of it, but it's, it's just hard to get excited about, um, yeah, the Northern Guinness Pro 14 Rainbow Cup, um, which is just a a weird name but and a weird competition and it's just frustrating that we could have had teams vying for those playoff places the quarterfinal semi-final you know you look at a team like Ulster how frustrating for them when they actually had a really good season and didn't get a chance to get into the final purely because they were in Leinster's uh, conference so there's all sorts of frustrations like that and there's frustrations for broadcasters who would up until yesterday, been planning to to kind of and marketing it as a, a competition involving the South African teams. We'll see those games if we want, but they're not competing in the same competition, and we're going to have to wait. Hopefully, it'll be September when it happens. Albeit, like who knows with COVID nineteen. Fingers crossed that things are okay to go ahead then, and and we can see this um, long distance league kind of kick on because the South African teams feel like they're going to. I suppose, cure a lot of the ills in terms of the lack of competitiveness, which was just jarring this season in particular um, and adding a bit of, uh, I suppose, stardust to it all. Um, but for now, yeah, we kind of plot on with these interpros that everyone's become a little bit tired with 
Um, albeit there's no expectation, so maybe that'll produce the the best, and we'll see some of these young players come through. Maybe the provinces will take a bit more punt with their with their selections, um, and I'm excited to see that side of it. So, fingers crossed, we get a, a couple of good rounds and and on into the the kind of cross border rounds again, rounds four to six. Ah, people will be fully invested once the games have actually kicked off. But can I get a quick hype level off you, Bernard, for Leinster Monster this weekend on a scale of one to ten? How excited are you? Sorry, that, did, did you catch me there? <laughs> that, that's how excited I am. Sorry, that's how excited I am. Uh, I, I can't believe it. Like, I love Munster Leinster. I, I, I love the Irish uh, provincial games. I'm actually working on both of them this weekend. Um, but it's just so hard to uh, to really get built up. Maybe once this weekend is over and we have some good games, it'll build. But uh, it's... Um, yeah, it's very frustrating, and you know, obviously there were like I, I didn't believe the Rainbow Cup would happen, but um, uh, you know, people were very optimistic from a, a Pro 14 point of view, and unfortunately, it hasn't now, and we've jeopardized. I mean, you know, who in five years' time is going to be saying, you know, do you want to see my Northern Rainbow Cup medal? You know, um, realistically, like it's, uh, you know, I thought, you know, I, I just think that it's, um, it's a pity. Look at it, it's. It's great that we still have games, etc. But we could have we could have been able to extend the old competition and you know ha- go into May, um, you know, with something still really tangible to play for. I just look, I can't wait till next year. I think it will be a better competition. I think September, um, with a bit of luck, it'll start properly and it will help the, the comp. Uh, but obviously, this doesn't do anything to uh, to justify its. It's credibility as a as as a as a top end you know rugby competition. But you know what, the old competition isn't that either, really, or hadn't played out in that manner uh, throughout the whole season. Birch, like I, I don't know, maybe it was partially because it was a short a shortened season that some of the teams that might have been in the mix for um, say playoff contention threw their hats at it a little bit and used it more for development ahead of next season, but. We, you touched upon it at the start of the show, like the Pro 14 in its current guise, if you like, is not a, a competition that would attract the likes of Raj Holm or, um, generally speaking, probably wouldn't necessarily attract marquee players apart from two the Irish provinces at the moment for, uh, and at that, it's probably for European reasons and the prestige of playing in the Champions Cup that they are joining. So as much as, yeah, we could have extended the, the season without this, I don't know. I, I feel like we'd actually be having the same conversation at the end of a normal season as well, which is that this this competition needs a serious shake-up. It's interesting, uh, Sam Warburton, who was doing media stuff for the Lions yesterday, sort of describing the, the uh, Pro 14 or, or, say, any kind of future iteration of it as being like going around with a, a money box or like a collection box and just trying to take money where it's on offer. And in doing so, you're bringing in teams from other countries and he'd prefer to see just a Celtic league, which probably isn't really sustainable at the moment. And there probably wouldn't be Welsh buying at least, but you know, it, we, we speak quite often about teams lacking identity and I don't know really what the identity of this competition is anymore with or without South African teams. Of course, we have to leave a few years for rivalries to build potentially between the Bulls and Leinster or something like that. But I don't know. It feels like they're kind of, pushing a problem down the road constantly by adding teams that are maybe not addressing the fact that uh, the competition itself is often just too uncompetitive and, and just isn't an attractive product. 
That's the key. That's the key, Gav. It's the, it's the competitiveness of it. Like the Heineken Cup was competitive pretty quickly and qu- pretty quickly became a, a big deal. And you have to hope that that's the case here and that this is it. Like settle on this. The South African teams come in. We know that they're going to be stronger than some of the existing teams and you would hope they'll be able to put it up to Leinster, Munster, Ulster, the, the three kind of leading teams at the moment. And that's what creates excitement and drama and real narratives you can't falsely manufacture that which is what the competition has probably been trying to do at times and you can understand that you're you're trying to build hype where it's just not there and like stormers going and beating leinster would totally create that and instantly creates a rivalry you see it in europe all the time you get knocked off by a team one year you absolutely want to meet them again next time round. so that's the only way to do it and that's what the top 14 my favorite league has there's so many rivalries chips on shoulders it's genuinely competitive all the time you lose one weekend you can drop right down the table a couple of wins in a row and you're suddenly in in playoff contention and that's what makes it riveting every single time obviously they have relegation hanging over it as well and and people just fighting for their lives against that so it's different in that sense but competitiveness is essential but murray if the stormers go and beat the scarlets home and away or the dragons and that kind of a pattern is established where now, instead of just the Irish teams being competitive, as was the case this season for all intents and purposes, it's just an Irish and South African league. It actually doesn't really cure the ailments suffered by competition, really. It just adds more competitive teams, good, but doesn't necessarily rise all boats. But, like, that's a that's a that's that's an issue for the Welsh regions. Like, when Scarlets were doing well or when Ospreys were consistently competitive, I didn't see the fans complaining in any way then, the, the Scarlets or Ospreys fans. They were loving it. They absolutely did. Um, and so it's on them like it, they're not going to go to England They obviously a lot of fans let's get an English-Welsh league but they're going to get hammered if they go in the Premiership a lot, the, the, uh, at times those teams at the moment they haven't been competitive enough and that's that's getting their own house in order um, so if they want to get left, left, left behind then that's <laughs> that's on them They're caught between a rock and a hard place a little bit Bernard aren't they the Welsh region specifically in that you have so many of their fans want an Anglo-Welsh league the Premiership probably look at the Welsh regions and think, why the hell would we add you to our prestigious, beautiful competition? You'll add nothing. Uh, so they don't want to be in the Pro 14, quite a lot of them. Uh, I'm not speaking, sorry, on behalf of the regions themselves, although there's probably that kind of a sentiment within a few of them, but on behalf of the fans. They don't want to be in the Pro 14. They want to be in the Premiership, but the Premiership doesn't want that. Yeah, uh, and it's... Um unfortunately, uh, sorry, in terms of what will be the real driver of change there is for the national team to not be successful, but they've got away with not having strong regions and winning Six Nations and Grand Slams, which is a huge part of, because there's a massive divide in Wales between, you know, there's a lot of people who hate the regions. No, the real old club fans don't want anything to do with the regions. So, um, you know, and they and Wales are winning, so they're still getting that, that feel-good factor about Wales winning. They're happy to go down and support their own club, which is great. Um, but there's a divide amongst the Welsh rugby public around whether regions should have ever started. Um, and, and I think until the national team start to struggle, uh, they won't actually really care enough about the lack of competitive, uh, competitiveness in, in the Welsh regions to, to change it. But yeah, they've, they've nowhere to go. I mean, the English Premiership won't take them on because financially and commercially they're not really attractive. Um, they're they're with us, um, and maybe you know four more strong teams coming in, and being being more competitive or being dominant uh, might you know drive that 
a necessary change to invest. And in fairness to the Welsh regions, it's, it's a, a lot of it's down to money. You know, they they aren't as well funded as the Irish provinces. Um, and yeah, so that's that's the issue. So where that money comes from is, is another question. But uh, yeah, at the moment, it's it's difficult because there's there's a lot of apathy towards regional rugby in Wales. Um, but there's a huge amount of love for for Wales as a, a the national team in the Six Nations and, and they've been very successful. So that probably hasn't um, driven the the real desperate need to look at how we can actually make the regions better. Murray, could I get a quick double prediction from you for the Interpros this weekend? I know we've no form line upon which to base these predictions, but just pluck a couple of results out of thin air for us there, if you don't mind. Leinster by seven, Ulster by ten. Okay, Birch? Um, yeah, I'd say Ulster might, Ulster haven't had a couple of, you know, decent uh, Challenge Cup games, um, might be a little bit better prep. So I, w- I would say Ulster by 15 and, yeah, Leinster probably by 10. Yeah, it should be inspiring stuff. I know I was complaining on Twitter uh, last week when Eddie O'Sullivan and Breach Smith had a debate on Clareburn Live. I thought to myself, we need to stop creating segments around tweets. Nonetheless, here's a tweet from Bernard Jackman yesterday <laughs> that I <laughs> would like to address. And we'd like, we'd, like, we'd like to discuss a little bit. Uh, nothing against Andy, and you're referring to Andy Kiraku, who uh, has joined the Munster Academy, Bernard, uh, who I'm sure is a great coach in person, but it must be very tough for any coach in the Irish domestic game to see where the opportunity for progression is. Munster have produced lots of quality players through their domestic game and the coaches in that. Do you want to take it from here, Birch? I know it's something you were keen to address, coaching development. Yeah. Yeah, just to be completely transparent, I am not uh, like I am looking for a job in uh, any of these jobs. So it's not about me. I've been very lucky. I've had a, a, a brilliant opportunity to go um, coach professionally um, and absolutely loved it. Uh, so it's not... It's not a bitterness type of uh, of tweet at all. I just feel sorry for the peop- the coaches in the domestic game. Uh, and look, at I, I probably got the opportunity. It definitely helped me get the opportunity massively because I was a pro player myself. So, and you know, Felix Jones and 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 Ron Nagara and, and Jerry Flannery um, and Mike Prendergast, you know, we're all pros. So we all kind of had a leg up, okay. Um, and that's. Um, you know, and I benefit from that. Uh, the question I have is, if I'm not a professional rugby player, um, and in soccer, there's lots of examples of non-professional soccer players being able to rise through the ranks and 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 coach at a high level because of their their skills as a coach. Um, I just wonder, you know, where. So, like again, I would go back to to um, the national governing body here because if you want to create a vibrant and domestic, uh, a vibrant game. Um, there's multiple aspects. There's men's, women's, underage, um, refer- performance, non-performance, referees, coaches, um, and, and a multitude of others. But they're 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 some of the ones that are are important. And I've seen again, you know, you know, referee wise, we've dropped off. We we had one uh, touch judge at the at the at the Rugby World Cup as a referee. Um, we had uh, we had no ref at the last World Cup. Um, we had no ref at the last in our twenties World Cup. So we we aren't producing. The, the quality of referees we have in the past. Okay, so that's an area that would concern me. Um, and then secondly, coaches. And like I actually know Andy. Andy was in the Sale Academy when I was there, and he is a good. He's a really good guy, and and, a, and a, I'm sure he's a great coach. It's probably just the next level of um, 
you know, an opportunity that came up in the professional game, albeit in the in the in the academy structure, and there was nobody in 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 Irish rugby who's been working in the schools or clubs who were deemed good enough to to get it, and you know, I think this example's monster, but it's across all it's across all the four provinces and. You know, women's rugby and uh, whatever any 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 level in Irish rugby where there's professional uh, contracts to be got, it's very difficult for someone from clubs or schools um, to get that break. Uh, and I, I I just think, you know, it's probably what we've done in terms of coach development. And and uh, um, you know, so four years ago we appointed a national uh, head a head of coach development, um, uh, a fellow called Matt, Matthew Wilk Wilksey, um, you know, and he's come in for four years and now he's gone. He went, I think, in December back to Australia to coach in a or to work in a private school. Uh, apparently, he's doing some consultancy for the RFU um, from Australia. Um, but I would say, what was like, what really was done in four years to try and bring through those grassroots coaches, the ones surely like. Irish people have gone across the world in all sectors and and done well. You know we're a well educated um, uh, nation. Um, there's a lot of passion. I mean, you know, Australians Kiwis didn't invent the rugby ball. The rugby ball has been around for a long time. Like we know how to how to um, coach. And you know, Declan Kidney won two Heineken Cups in a Grand Slam. You know, um, Harry Harry Williams won won a, won a Heineken Cup at Ulster. Um, Leo Cullen hasn't done too bad. Um, and that's at the very top end. And, and and the reality is, and this is the the backbone of, of the professional game at the moment, it, it, a large percentage of schools, right? Schools players. They've been coached by, the majority have been coached by Irish people um, who have done a fairly good job. Like they come out... They come out of schools and they're they're not far away from... They're definitely on a comparable level to England, France. Um, and I was a foreign coach in France, you know, Raj, John O'Gibbs, Mike Prendergast are foreign coaches in France. But in terms of the overall percentage, it's absolutely tiny. You know, the 90% or more are, are French. And, you know, I, I was lucky enough to get my French uh, coaching badge through France. And, you know, we were very lucky as foreigners to get on it in the first place. Um, but it was a very good, intensive course, you know, with, with, with side visits to some of the top clubs in, in, in France, an opportunity exchange to debate, to ask questions, um, which is which is brilliant. And like I know, so you know I had this coaching group last last summer. The amount of domestic coaches who rang me trying to get videos of the of the webinars, trying to get on the course, because they felt there was nothing really tangible happening for them. And so there's people who, you know, they're not looking for any freebies. They're just looking for a level, a level shot. And, and I remember on our court coaching course we um we went and spent some time with the cast uh, coach, a fellow called Christoph Urias, who's now coaching in Bordeaux. And Bordeaux are in the Champions Cup semi-final. They're building a really nice project there. He had been in INA for seven or eight years, and he explained the, his philosophy and his project. And do you know what he copied? He copied Munster. Okay, So he basically said, I saw this team playing in Europe with with fans who were absolutely passionate about it, players who would die for their jersey on the field, and this idea of a monster man, okay? And the, the term they used was cast or oil man, oil man, right? So I want to be an oil man. What does an oil man look like? They stand up and fight. Oh, this is obviously all in French, but stand up and fight. Um, they respect the jersey. They're close to their fans. They have an identity. And he created this identity in Oyana, a, a tiny club in a tiny town, and they got promoted from uh, Pro D2, and they actually qualified for the Champions Cup. 
right? Based on this mentality of Iron Man. And he's brought the same thing to Cass and he's brought the same thing to Bordeaux. But it's copying Munster, right? Okay. So Munster had Munster couldn't have done too bad a job um if someone in France who's been successful wants to learn about their their history, their identity, right? And now if you look at the and I, look, I know I'm always giving out about Munster at the moment, but I'll just use them as an example here. I, as I said, it's all the provinces I think could do better. But you know, the, the Johan is head coach South African, the defense coach is South African, the English the forwards coach is English. Um the backs coach is Australian. The skills coach who comes in part time is, is is New Zealander. Um, you know, and now you know, uh, uh, like there's an example, right? So where's the identity? You know, where's the identity with Munster in that coaching group? And and again, I was lucky enough to have John O'Gibbs. I had Mike Brewer. I had David Knox. Um, you know, Michael Checker. You know, absolutely, we can learn a huge amount from bringing in top end foreign coaches I'm totally we have to give our players the best possible environment right and and that's that's a given but I'm like I've also been around the block and I know that like you know I, I helped out last year in Newbridge College like Johnny Murphy is a very good coach right um, there's a guy in St. Michael's M. McMahon you try and break down the, the Michael's forward pack because we played them last year they're unbelievably well drilled right and and you know someone has had a hand in that and it's, it's someone like M. McMahon who's who's coaching there. Like, if you coach at school's level, you're coming up against a lot of good coaches, right? And I find it hard to believe that there's not someone in Ireland coaching um, at schools or domestic level who is ready to get an opportunity to coach kids who are only two years older than they've coached all their lives. Um, and again, um, maybe there isn't. But then if there isn't, why haven't... What, like, what's the point in having a head of coach development if... Or what's the why hasn't that plan worked? You know, so it's just something like that. And that like we don't have a head of coach development at the moment because he hasn't been replaced. So is it a priority? Um so yeah, look at it. It's not about Andy. It's it's just I find it hard to believe that a team like Munster a province like Munster, and it doesn't have to be Munster, it could be someone from Leinster, Ulster, or Connacht, um, who's dedicated, wants a shot, um, has proven himself over the last five or six years or whatever, 10 years, 15 years. Um, at being a good coach couldn't like Andy Kirak who's coaching in a private school in England the new skills coach for Ulster you know, is coaching in a private school in England if you bring Michaels or Newbridge over to there over there we'd, we'd, we'd probably hammer them Rack Rock would hammer them like it's not a different level like it's not they haven't gone and, and shown in my opinion um, consistently that they're way better than, than our guys but we just don't seem to give them a shot and it's nearly a, hand, a hindrance to be from that region or province uh, I think uh, and it's looked down upon and it starts the whole thing about the the the, the sense of care about the, the domestic game uh, in terms of the clubs like how much do they really care about the clubs and could you give those coaches some kind of pathway or encouragement so that they get invigorated and then they you know they, they, they do a better job coaching in the clubs it's like you just sap their energy constantly through lack of care through lack of pathways and eventually eventually you're left in a in a poor state and like we're not a million miles from from going into a bit of a crisis in Irish rugby honestly we're not um, like we have a competition our core competition isn't um, healthy the Pro 14 at the moment we're hoping the Rainbow Cup gets better the international team last three years were third in the Six Nations you know we're not challenging for World Cups let's be honest and underneath the domestic game, the people in the domestic game are fatigued. They're lacking energy. They're lacking the feeling of connection. 
to the professional game. And suddenly then attendances drop, um, you know, sponsorship drops and the, the professional game don't have the money they have now. And then you got to try and dig yourself out of a hole. So it's just a case of actually flagging this, in my opinion. People in IRFU will give me numbers about coach courses and all that stuff. And that's absolutely their prerogative. I'm telling, I'm saying, in my opinion, coaches I speak to in the club game, which I speak to a lot because I'm coaching Abective, the schools game because I'm coaching in Newbridge, people who reach out to me um, don't feel that there's any real future for them. And that's based upon not being able to get a job. Um, and again, look at the people who interview will say they didn't have the experience, etc. I don't think we have we're that ba bad at rugby. Um, that we're totally new to the game. It's not like a tier two country or whatever, you know, or or the MLR. Like we have good rugby people in this country, um, and for some reason, it seems to be a hindrance rather than a help that you've actually spent your 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 your, your time doing the hard yards, creating good players and creating good teams. There's just nowhere to go. Um, and that's, look, the majority of people won't care about it, but the grassroots people and uh, the people in the club game, they're the quietest. Like if this was France, if this was France, there would be absolute chaos. The French Federation would be um, on its knees because the people wouldn't stand for it. Um, we're just quiet, we accept it, and we get, uh, we get de-energized, which is even worse because... You know, it's, it has the same effect um, long term. But the club people are actually the majority, Bernard. Like you're saying, yeah, the majority quiet. of people they, won't. They, yeah, they, but they're, they're broken. They're broken. Um, they they feel disenfranchised. They, uh, like, it's it's actually very sad. Uh, it's very sad. Look, at, there's obviously clubs that are still, you know, vibrant and, and flying. But as a, as a whole, as a whole, um, I, I think a lot of club uh, club members, Alicadoos, uh, players, you know, they just feel, they feel like they're disenfranchised. They, they do. They, they, that's my, that's my feedback. That's my feedback. And people come up to me in the street and 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 vent. Um and uh, and it's, it's look at it's not it's not the end of the world for RFU because they're they've got their performance metrics. Um, but I think I think long term it'll it'll bite us on the ass. Mm. It's funny, like uh, my experience is very similar to yours, Bernard. S certainly with coaches who are frustrated at not seeing a clear pathway or even. And that pathway doesn't have to be towards being a professional rugby coach with Munster or Leinster. It's a pathway towards being a better coach and having access to good resource to increase their skills. But it is funny, even when we do a podcast, which has, like say this podcast here, I think some fans of the provinces are going to say, this is just negative bullshit. But the funny thing is we'll get loads of feedback from people who are, say, attached to clubs and stuff saying, fair, fair play to Bernard for highlighting that. Like, I'd go further and disenfranchise. I'd say some people involved in the cup game in Ireland dislike the professional game. They don't actually support Munster, Leinster, Connacht. They don't watch them. They don't like it. They, even with the Ireland team, I think there's a, a kind of, not a dislike, that's a strong word, but a, just a... An apathy, Murray. Uh, yeah, apathy is the right word. That's that's a perfect word for it. Um, and that's sad, really, because those people are people who've invested their whole lives, really, all their free time, a lot of their own money into rugby and, and following it and coaching it. So... There is that weird disconnect at the moment um, that probably needs to be joined up more. And again, I don't think that's very hard to do. You've suggested some good solutions, Bernard, before in terms of getting a few coaches from clubs in and, and making them part of a province and having a connection there. Um, so, yeah, you would hope that it doesn't continue the way it, it, it is at the moment. Yeah, and again, I, I look at I mean, Andy Kirak, who 
it's not about him. It's just uh, it's just the the latest example. And and again, it's not Munster at all. It's all the provinces um, could do better in terms of bringing him in. And it might be just bring them into you know being involved with the A team. And like, and I'm not saying they have to professionalize them at all. Um, but it's this this thing where you know, look at you're part of our you're part of our pathway, and you know we want to help you with your coaching. Maybe maybe you take it away from the RFU and give it back to the provinces um, completely. Uh, because for, I know someone like Leo Cullen, um, you know, he would, he like, they've done a huge amount to develop Noel McNamara. I know the RFU would take credit for that, but they, you know, they, they've identified Noel McNamara and Klongos um, and they, they, he has come true in fairness, which is, which is absolutely brilliant. But I just think there can be a lot more done. Um, and, it, and it's not, there's no, there's no, as far as I'm concerned, actually, putting a plan in place, engaging with these coaches, they all understand it's not jobs for everybody. It's just the potential to maybe go, go up the ranks. Mm. And there are examples, as you mentioned, Noel McNamara, and I know that he, I suppose inspiration is, is a strong word, and he'd, he'd, um, he wouldn't like to be described as that, I don't think, but that is a, a good sign that it can happen for a dedicated, high-quality coach. Obviously, in Munster, Ian Costello is coming back to be the academy boss, and he's a guy who came through AIL and, and worked in the program. Munster still have George Murray there in the the kind of senior staff who's been there behind a, a lot of head coaches and and remains a kind of integral part of it. Even in Connacht, we saw Collie Tucker and, and Mossy Lawler getting appointed, which I think is a really positive move. Um, in Ulster, Dan Soper, I know he's a Kiwi, but he's obviously been in Ireland for a very long time, had great success in the AIL and, and schools kind of game, the domestic game, and, and has shown now what can happen if you give a guy like that an opportunity? He's up to assistant coach now. He's made a massive impact on the province. And I hope that that kind of sends out the signal that someone who's high performing in the AAL or in, in schools rugby can absolutely do it in professional game as well. Um, and then there are also examples of of people who've come in and and it is, as you say, sometimes good to have a, a, a different viewpoint, even pr- particularly for a developing player. There's a guy in Ulster, actually, I played with in UL Bowes called... Aidan McNulty um, and obviously he played in, in Ireland for years and and made it home um, but he's come back from from over in, in the UK he's with, with Newcastle and has a really different perspective on the game like really interesting guy to talk to thinks about things very differently and has definitely added a huge amount in that so it is good to have different experiences um, adding in um, but again he's a guy who, who's been in the AL played there and it's shown that he can he can push into the the development side of the game. So hopefully there are enough examples for people to keep motivated, and that they once we get the coaching course etc. back up and running in person, that there's more availability and accessibility for people to feel like they're making progress with, with their careers. Because as Birch says, like those people are arguably more important than some of the senior coaching staff because they have such an influence on players coming through the pathway. Well, listen, my mic died about 20 minutes ago, but it's been a pleasure to listen to you for the last while. I'm glad you took the reins. I could listen to it all day, although I know you guys did a a podcast as well, the Club Scene podcast, where both of you uh, discussed the club game, I guess. I think that's it this morning, is it? Thursday morning? Yeah, it is. They they released it this morning. Um, Great stuff from Bernard on there and also from Don Lennon, who's like, there's some serious rugby IP and IQ and understanding of all different various layers of the game. So he's a guy who's always worth listening to. Yeah, so check that out as well. Uh, that should be a cracking one. I'm looking forward to listening to that one myself. I'll wrap up quickly without a mic. Thank you, Bernard. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Cheers, Gav. 
This podcast was sponsored by Guinness, also proud sponsors of the Women's Six Nations. Remember to drink responsibly. Back on Monday with Rugby Weekly Extra, back next Thursday for all non-members as well. Until then, mind yourself, take it easy. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could have me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. It is Tommy Moe! Rugby, Rugby Weekly.